You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Hello, Andre. I have understood you removed the phantom power. Okay. I don't know why we needed to share that with the listeners. It's very tragically hip of you. Uh, yeah, so we're recording this on a new toy that I recently acquired. The mobile studio for Two Guys Talking Wine has become much more mobile. It looks like a like a... Well, I was going to say a deck of cards, but maybe two or three decks of cards. Yeah, I picked up a, a Zoom H6 handy recorder. So if this show sounds a little different to everybody, uh, it's because it was recorded differently. If it sounds better, then we can be all happy that Andre's toy worked. If you do not think it sounds better, blame Andre. I mean, you usually do, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> all right. So by the time people are listening to this, I, I've been back for quite some time. Well, I think before we, you know... Uh, get into that, and and three hours of people are not going to get back from their lives. Um, why don't we talk about what we are at least sipping upon? Well, that ties into the whole story. Like, I brought this for a reason. Does it really? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, so we are sipping on a Leaning Post 2020 Bach Vineyard Pinot Noir. Okay. And the reason why I wanted us to sip on Pinot Noir is uh, I did I did come back from Burgundy. Yes. Now, I will be keeping quiet now for the next three hours. Andre will be talking. (laughs) I brought back six bottles. Guess how many are Chardonnay and how many are not. Oh, wait. No guess. I know you're looking over your shoulder. I think it's four to two. Okay. For Chardonnay. Yes. I brought back four bottles of Chardonnay, but two bottles of Pinot. Um, That's Spencer. Spenny. (laughs) Spenny's making noise. Um, Spenny, not Spenny. I, I spent a whole week uh, sipping on quite a bit of Chardonnay, uh, but obviously, you know, rediscovering and falling in love with uh, Pinot Noir again. We, did you fall out of love with Pinot? No, but I mean, the whole Captain Chardonnay thing, it's just like, it's very clear I have a favorite child, right? Like, you know what? I, first of all, about the send check, um, or this Bach, sorry, this this leaning post. I, it does need just a touch of a chill. I, I agree. We, we, we pulled this, like, you literally whipped by the winery on the way over here, and I, I I called ahead to buy the bottle to make sure that it was on time. But it's just, I thought it would be important to um, to sip on a, a good bottle of Pinot. And I mean, one of the things that I, I learned is it's just like, the age of vines in Burgundy definitely have an impact on the overall quality of the wine. But... Um, I still feel completely validated that where Ontario is headed, we are certainly on track. Uh, I think dollar for dollar, our Pinot Noirs that go $50, $60, $70 will get you a hell of a lot farther than, for the most part, what you get in Burgundy. But when you're talking about some of these old vines, some of the Premier Cru and Grand Cru vineyards in Burgundy, we're not there yet. So where were you in in Burgundy? Uh, I, I I will fully admit to try and get ready for this podcast, which I, I do not think I am ready in any way, shape, or form for the inundation and flood I am about to get. Um, but I did go to a Chablis tasting. Yes. So were you in Chablis? Uh, Chablis is the only region that I um, I did not go to. Alrighty then. Uh, basically, we started the trip out in the south, uh, in the Macanay, then worked our way up to the Cote Chalonnaise. So these are two regions that are largely Chardonnay producers. Um, and then we were in the Cote d'Or, so Bone and Cote d'Henri, and just basically did the geographic like gamut from bottom to top, and then on the last day of the trip, the people from Burgundy were kind enough to extend it an extra day and give Captain Chardonnay a, a full day in Merceau and Pouligny Montrichet. And what did you what did you learn about uh, Chardonnay from the motherland? Um. That we're doing it right in Ontario, we're 100% doing it right. And like just seeing the, the breadth of styles, like obviously when you're dealing with like the village, Poligny, Chassang, Merceau, like you're dealing with, once again, older vines, vines that crop down lower so that the, it comes at a price premium. But, you know, you're down in the Mackinac, the Cote Chalonnaise, like you're dealing with a lighter, uh, crunchier, like strong mineral driven Chardonnay with a lot less oak. And, um, you know, there, there was no, 
true and steadfast recipe for making Chardonnay and virtually every method of making Chardonnay that I've seen in Niagara, uh, I saw in one of the wineries there, like 15% new oak, 85% in stainless steel, long lease contact, no lease contact, some batonage, no batonage. Like it, it's literally like everywhere. And, and there were good wines. Like there was no, oh my gosh, there's no batonage on this wine. It's not as good as, as other wines. Like there were great wines across the board. So was there a style that you didn't like? Because um, I'm sure it's easier to pick out the style you didn't like versus the styles you did like. You know, I, I think it just comes down to, to personal preference. Like, as a journalist, I, I'm thrilled to write about Macané wines and the Coachella's wines. But, you know, as we've talked about on the podcast before, my tastes are drifting a little more expensive, a little bit bigger. And even when it comes to Chardonnay, like the people I champion, people like Thomas Batchelder or the Sand Chucks at Leaning Post, for example, you're dealing with a richer, broader style of, of Chardonnay. So naturally, my taste gravitated more towards the, the bone wines for Chardonnay. So explain what bone wines are. So those are the Merceau, Poligny, Chassang, Montrachet. And you're dealing with winemaking that is virtually all 100% done in barrel. And, and there was some sort of exceptions in and around that, which I thought was fascinating. Like we visited Louis Latour and I really very much appreciated the transparency in what they talked about with their winemaking. Like there were a few things that they do because they can't, you know, go straight into barrel when you're making hundreds and hundreds of barrels of Chardonnay. So they press it, let some of the juice settle before it goes into barrel. And the other one um, that, that I visited as well, which I thought was fascinating was Demand Favely. So most places in Burgoyne across the board are using indigenous indigenous yeasts. And um, Favely, they talked about in 2020, they had a crazy hot summer similar to what we had in Niagara. And, you know, similar to what I saw with the damn Chardonnay that we made with the ADX Wine Company. Um, once you hit about 13 and 14% alcohol, when you get a hot summer, the indigenous yeast just die. So the uh, winemaking team at the Manfavely have decided to switch to commercial yeasts to just maintain a certain amount of control over the quality of their product, right? Make sure that if you have a hot summer with a lot of sugar, you're going to be able to ferment the wines to the finish. One thing I didn't completely agree with was the uh, the gentleman who was giving us the tour at the Manfavely was trying to tell me that, um, oh, there's no difference in taste with indigenous yeast versus commercial yeast so there's really no point in doing anything different it's just like you know on the one hand i understand like i understand the whole like the science behind this and the people talking about yeast strains and what exists in the air and what exists at wineries and this is something you and i can debate until the cows come home but i think the jury's pretty much out at least in ontario that most of the Chardonnays in particular that have that je ne sais quoi are generally fermented with indigenous yeast. Well, that, that to me, and I wasn't there, but it sounds like a marketing guy trying to, you know, make the excuse that an indigenous yeast and the commercial yeast is going to be the same product in the end, which I don't, I don't believe. I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of indigenous yeast Chardonnays for the most part. Let's go with that. Um, and I find, and you're right. I do find them uh, more interesting than I find, you know, the commercial stuff. Although, you know, some commercial stuff is just fine. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, like for my 2020 Dam Chardonnay, we fermented it to about, I think, 13 and a half degrees alcohol, and still had four grams per liter residual sugar, and the wine tasted sweet. We had to use indigenous yeast and. I have no issues saying that. I mean, it's a nice thing about Latour and Favely, though, is the transparency that they offered with the winemaking. It's not like they were trying to, to sell alchemy like it was the greatest thing on the on the planet. And I mean, I love the Favely wines. I like the white mercury. That's something that we try to keep in the house. Are you going to make a joke? No. <laughs> no, I will not. I was going to ask you if you, had, if you had tried my favorite place, but you've kind of... <laughs> Um, and I and I and I have to be honest. I've I've not had or can't remember having a white mercury. Oh well, Domain Favely does a really great, uh, really great like entry level um, mercury. It comes in like fifty, sixty bucks at the LCBO. And um, my wife and I, Anya, like usually for her birthday, that's something we try to keep in the house to enjoy for her birthday. Um, and really interesting, like white mercury is really interesting. Um, 
more oak presence, a little bit less fruit, lots of mineral. Um, I'm not sure how you would feel about it, to be honest. We'll have to, we'll have to get our hands on one and, and talk about it. I, I really like, well, we're supposed to do Chardonnay du Monde uh, yes. around here. so We still got to do we that. We still got to do that. I was, I was just discussing um, with, uh, with Nadia over at Leaning Post about, uh, about our podcast this year. And I said, I don't think we've touched on much of our plan for the year, which was visiting a lot of Italian and, uh, and Chardonnay. Yeah. Um, other things have been around. Let's call it that. You know, it. Uh, I know we're in the middle of this chat about my trip to to Burgoyne here, but uh, I think the podcast has been sounding a lot better since we've gone to biweekly. <laughs> Correct. We have. I think. I think our topics are are more uh, more interesting. But I was like, you know, when we started, we were like, we are going to do Chardonnay of the world, and we are going to do Italy, and we have done a little bit of Italy. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't think the I don't think you've convinced me completely on Chardonnay yet. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, and I mean, that's it, though, is, is I think, like, this, the, the purpose of this podcast is certainly not to convince you, because this is another one. The jury's definitely out on Well, I have nothing to taste. Chardonnay. It's not like you, you've got a bottle that you've opened up and said, hey, <laughs> this, this, is, this is, you know, Mercury Chardonnay. Well, which, I mean, it's the unfortunate thing about the wines that I brought back. It's the other reason why we're drinking Leaning Post, is the wines I brought back are not ready to drink yet like these are van de garde they're wines that need like a year or two in a cellar for them to really like integrate come together and be like ready to rock like i guess that is one of the the problems but it's one of the things i like about burgoyne versus say abruzzo which i know i've been picking on quite a bit on the podcast is you're not dealing with wines that need to age for 20 years before they're ready but you're dealing with wines that can age uh we'll talk about abruzzo in an upcoming yeah i can't wait to hear your experience there but i mean to talk about ageability um way up in bowen we visited domain pavolo and like this was this was like fantastically fun the uh owner did not speak a lot of english was like the true definition of a farmer like he was very gracious he was a gracious host uh we felt welcome in there but at the same time it was just sort of like it was someone who wanted to spend less time around journalists and more time on a tractor, if you know what I mean. Yep. yep. Had, had a Jonas Newman-esque quality to him. Okay. But, I mean, it's, it's like I was really there to learn. So, like, the, the questions I asked, like, now that I am I have more Burgundy coming into my cellar and, you know, I'm starting to learn that maybe some of the Chardonnay that I'm holding isn't going to age as gracefully as I thought. But if I'm bringing back some Pinot Noir, and I brought back two bottles of Pinot Noir, I asked um, I asked the the proprietor there... Uh, well, when are these wines going to be ready to drink? Because a lot of the wines that we tasted, let me go through my notes here. A 2018 Premier Cru Oget, if that means anything to anyone in the car, but like Premier Cru means, you know, a plot that's been recognized by the people of Burgoyne as producing high quality wine every year. Um, the tannin had, had sort of just started to soften on it, but it was still pretty tight. Um, and my notes are like the the fruit notes were dense and quite ripe, really good cherry, but the acids were still like really high, and then the cherry notes were really struggling to push through on the finish. So I, I asked him, I'm like, so when is and I speak French, uh, thankfully. So when is this wine going to be ready to drink, where the tannin softens, but like you know the fruit's really fresh? And then we got into a discussion, like me and the group of journalists, about how long you can age some of these wines. And, you know, in the most Jonas Newman-esque way, you know, he kind of turned on turned on his heel like while we were having the discussion and went down in the cellar and pulled out a bottle that was covered in that, you know, the black mold that you see in a lot of really old cellars of France. It's not bad mold. It's just mold. And uh, he opened up the bottle and, and shared it with us. It was in 1991 from the same vineyard, Premier Cru Oguette. And um, you were kind enough earlier this year to open that Octavius Yes. Uh, for me from Australia. This was another wine that just like rocked me right to my core. Um, fresh, vibrant, but you know, it was a contradiction among itself at the same time, like a whole torrent of like biting into a perfectly ripe cherry, but at the same time, a little bit of that grandma's potpourri, like the, the dried rose petal, the dried cherry notes, uh, like walking through a forest with a mossy, a damp mossy floor, and getting that perfect smell of like, I know you would hate this, but like, you know, cooking porcini mushrooms. It was just like, when people talk about what Pinot Noir can taste like, this tasted like 
everything so that is Pinot this, Noir is supposed to taste like. Is this your, and you know, I know we're not supposed to curse on the, um, on the podcast anymore, yeah. but I believe I, you know, I don't think you should bleep this out because, you know, a lot of people talk about that moment. So is this, or was that your holy shit moment? As in, I get this wine, um, and and um, you know, most people say their their holy shit moment is usually with a Pinot. Um, maybe. I mean, that's the thing. Is it's just like like that wine moved me profoundly, but uh, unfortunately, tasting that wine made me think of you because of the Octavius that we'd opened earlier this year, the Ridge Montebello. It's like we're having. A hell of a year you and i just having the opportunity to taste some wines that have aged gracefully in a cellar and i couldn't help but think about the fact that the montebello that we tasted was only 10 years old and still in a fantastic place so like it's great that i got to taste this 1991 wine you know 30 some years later but like you know i wonder if the 10 year mark is where i would really enjoy it so you know it's it just a thing too like we've talked about like buying multiple bottles of the same wine if you find something you really like and putting it in a cellar but it's the problem with burgoyne wines is they're generally so expensive like you know if you find a really great premier crew at 100 bucks a bottle you're looking at 1200 bucks for a case and even then i don't know if i have room in my cellar for a full case of a wine if i find several like that over the course of a year you know so are are these the the kind of wines that that I guess did you find any that were in what they call the dumb phase? They always say Pinot goes into that dumb phase, uh, or were you trying mostly wines that were curated to make sure you enjoyed them? If you if you get what I'm, I'm yeah, getting I at. do I do get what you're saying. Um, I, I think we definitely tasted quite a bit of Pinot that was like not ready to be drank at all but like we got to taste a lot of 18s 19s 20 and 21s we were fortunate to taste 21 21s because it was a short crop because of that devastating frost um but like the 18 19s 20s were all like you know it's a nice thing where we talk about ontario being on the right track with pinot and chardonnay like i'm fortunate enough as a journalist to have covered so much of ontario to get a good sense for what the wines will eventually taste like but being duck out of water, it I, you can't compare the the longevity in a cellar of Burgoyne to Ontario. Like it's just not it's just not the same. You know, no, I, I don't have I don't have the experience, and I'd like to have, but I just you know when when here in Ontario, most people when they bring out those older wines, it's usually Cabernet Franc that we get. You know, they say, oh, this has been you know twenty years, twenty five years as a Cabernet Franc, or we we rarely ever get uh, somebody who has 20 years of Pinot and go, let's give this a shot. Yeah, so totally. I'm throwing that out to any listeners out there uh, who are in the wine world, who do have a cellar of, you know, that old Ontario stuff that is Pinot, not Bordeaux-based. I'm talking Burgundy-based. Yeah. So any winery out there who's listening, if you do have a cellar that goes back 10, 15, 20 years of Pinot, maybe it's time that we have a chat and uh, and talk about, does Pinot from Ontario have that kind of 1991 longevity? I, I would love to see that. You know, I, and, and I know you've got some more questions for me, but um, I'm going to take control of the conversation for a quick second. One of the producers that we visited was Pascal Marchand. Uh, we know the name from Marchand Taz. It's the same Maury Taz that owns Taz Vineyards and Redstone down in Niagara. And um, his wines were accessible from the onset. And it was a fascinating conversation that I, I had with him because um, like Pascal is, is <laughs> on one hand... It feels like the reason why he's taking his winemaking in a certain direction is because he he wants to do less work. So like he's not as religious with with the pump overs and the punch downs. He tries to do as little as possible to be as gentle as possible with the extraction of flavors, tannin, and and fruit from you know his from his Pinot Noir when it comes in. But um, you know he's trying to find a balance between making wines that can be delicious in their youth but still hold on to their sellerability. And I actually interviewed him to talk about uh, what it was that he was trying to do with his winemaking. 
It's part of uh, it's part of uh, we 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 trust our vineyards a lot, uh, and it's part of uh, the way the wines are consumed nowadays, um, and also the, the 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 way the market is organized. Like um, nowadays, I mean, in the past, no, you you could bottle a wine and tell people, okay, that wine is not easy to taste now, but just wait ten years and it will be fantastic. Nowadays, the old world is, I mean, the old world, the journalists and the sommeliers are coming uh, to taste your wines and they're not even bottled and uh, the wines are, are have to show well right away. So, uh, and uh, so we make them, in, I mean, uh, we, we, the way we, we vinify them, uh, we, we, uh, we trust our grapes more uh, because we work really, we, we work hard in the vineyards and when the grapes are coming in the winery we feel like we need to do less on them to get the final result and therefore the wines when we bottle them are doesn't they don't have these harsh tannins um, even though they, they need to age they can i mean they can still have an ability to age uh, they taste uh, they're much easier to taste uh, right away interesting eh it's an interesting thought. I'm not really sure where to go with it. So you were the one who tasted them, obviously. Yeah, I, I, I found like like I said, like I was just thrilled to find. I think uh, more um, Pascal Marchand is making some of the most approachable wines in Burgoyne, and I, I did like push him on it to ask him if you're making a compromise of drinkability versus cellarability, because like how do you how do you appeal to everyone, right? And you know. I, I was fortunate enough to taste quite a few Grand Cru wines at, at you know various ages, but all quite young. Um, you know, at Latour, at um, Edward Delaunay, uh, oh. uh, Claude de Vougeot. I've met Edward. Claude de Vougeot there? I, I like some of... I'm sure he didn't pour his September wines, which I thought were quite lovely. They, uh, yeah, they, we tasted the, the September wines and... Um, which we're ready to drink right away, and then he makes his stuff that that's for longer aging. That being said, you know, putting my critic hat on, the 2021 vintage of the Pinot Noir Burgoyne Septembre was not great, like quite green. You could really taste the struggle that they likely had in the vineyard with their crop load. But so the, the, Chardonnay, so the stuff I had had was many years ago when yeah, Edouard was last in Toronto. But the Chardonnay, the 2021 Chardonnay is, is great. And you know, it's another thing where I know I keep tying this trip back to, to Niagara is there is this um, uh, and, and this isn't me being Captain Chardonnay. This is just like observational is that like there's just a fortitude that comes with Chardonnay. It's less difficult than Pinot Noir. Which is why it's called the Heartbreak Grape, and yeah. my Chardonnay is called the Winemaker's Grape. I think it's pretty, pretty. Uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, goes without saying that, uh, you know, the grape that winemakers love to use, for the most part, <laughs> is Chardonnay, and the ones that they loathe to use but want to make a great wine with is Pinot Noir, is Pinot Noir because it is a more difficult grape. So, the question I have, though, based on the uh, the Pascal Marchand comment, sure. is did he let you try some 10-year-old wines that he had made in this method? No, he did not, and we did and we did not have a chance to, to taste them. Um, but I do plan on buying some for the seller, and he does make some affordable ones. Like right now, there is a Burgoyne Cote d'Or available at the LCBO. Uh, there was a recent bourbon offer at the LCBO, but you need to spend fifty dollars to get over the limit. The bottle I wanted was forty six dollars, so I I added a Marchantaz Cote d'Or Burgoyne, and I'm going to put that in the cellar. And who knows, it might stay there for a year, it might stay there for two years. But that's the cool thing about having Pascal's wines in your cellar, though, is if you're having like a get together with a a good friend you haven't seen in a month because you've both been busy traveling and you want one more bottle in the night, you know you can grab a bottle of the Marchantaz and get a good bottle. Yeah, but what I'm what I'm interested in is, you know, he's Whether now talking about, you know, trying to, you know, straddle that fine line of uh, drinkability now versus 10 years of aging. You know, it sounds great in, in theory, but it would be interesting to find out if in practice he's hit that uh, that magic line and i guess you'll have to wait and and try something i know it's one of the things where like i'm trying really hard to develop a little bit more patience in in terms of 
what is in my cellar. That's where the three bottle rule comes in. Right? Yeah. It's easier to be patient when you can have one now, one in two years, and then one in whenever. Uh, when you only buy one, you have to hit that right spot. And uh, you know, I fully understand why you don't like, for the most part, yeah, older wines. It's because you only get one shot. Whereas yeah. you know, I used I get th- I got three to you know uh, whether I got it right or not. For the most part, is when I was when I was collecting, I would do three. That's why yeah. when you're buying fifty to a hundred dollar bottles versus me and my twenty dollar bottles or less. You know, it's easier to develop the love of older wine when you're not so sad about <laughs> letting that bottle age. That when you go, ah, it was nine dollars, it tasted terrible. Versus, oh, well, it was nine dollars, it tasted great. Yeah, I completely get uh, completely get what you're saying. But the, but like I said, that being said, you are seeing a very like an unparalleled level of high quality. Like especially with the winemakers working with Premier Cru vineyards, and it's one of these things where you know I'm, I, I'm a little skeptical. Like you know, you look at the Premier Cru system in um, in Bordeaux, and you take a look at sort of like the legal battles and kind of the unmitigated like poop show that takes place every time they try to update it, revise it. Those wineries have changed hands, blah blah blah. Like you know, the the Premier Cru system is a marketing tool, especially in twenty. 23 like it's something that is supposed to mean something to help you sell your wines but i i do think that in in burgoyne for the most part like it is a really good you know in it, it is doing like what thomas is trying to do in ontario with working with all these single plots make sure you're designating the names of them is it's giving you an idea of what to expect taste wise and like you have to worry about vintage conditions blah 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 but like you know they're they're I, I do see like a, a strong correlation between the the crew system in Burgoyne and quality of wines, but also I found it a little bit fascinating too to see the struggles that the wineries had with making Grand Cru wines in a certain style because most of these wineries have so little of it. You're sort of forced to put it into a brand new barrel or larger portions of brand new oak as opposed to like their Premier Cru or Village level wines. I know this is sort of like a long rambly thing where like I'm trying to defend the Burgoyne like classification system, but like I really did get a bit of an understanding of it. And, you know, I did bring back two bottles of Grand Cru Burgoyne that I spent money on, but white wines, not red wines. So here's, here's a question. Have sure. you been to the uh, Chablis tasting? Yeah. And I have, you know, um, subsequently, uh, you know, looked at my notes that uh, that I had and checked because they were all available at the LCBO. Um, what's the affordability or the price, I guess, let's go with that, of these wines in Burgundy versus, um, like I believe, the, the least expensive Chablis that we tasted was a William Fevre, which is, you know, a fairly large producer in, as far as I'm concerned. Um it was a Petit Chablis, which is, you know, a, 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 a region that, you know, was established in uh, 1944. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's a fairly well-known region, although I think it's one that many people forget about. Um, it, it has a, a fairly, it, it produces a fairly large, I think it's 20% of everything that comes out of, of Burgundy is made in, in Chablis, uh, something of that nature. Um, but the cheapest bottle of that William Fevre Petit Chablis was $32. I love Petit Chablis too. So, um, and then I looked at the rest of the stuff and it sat in the 40 the $50. So this is not Grand Cru or Premier Cru or anything like that, although they have their areas as well that, uh, that do that. But Petit Chablis is probably the, the, the rung, uh, for lack of a better better say, thing to say, it's probably the rung uh, just above basic. Yeah. I would say. Petit Chablis is like the, the entry level yeah. for for. So where does you know the affordability of the wines that you tried 
fit in? Are they still, you know, no. in, in no, Burgundy? No, no, no. So we're talking no. way, way up. The, the, these are these are like treat treat wines, a hundred percent. Like these are not daily drinkers. These are not things that we're looking for. And and I got I'm, that, but but if you know you figure out whether it's going to be when it gets to Canada. Oh, gotcha. I see the. So question when they were there, are they more affordable in Burgundy, yes. or are they they just still out of range? Uh, they're more affordable in Burgundy, but it's also like it's the one thing that's tough to get used to as a tourist because like. You know, I live close to Niagara now, like visiting Leaning Post as part of my grocery shopping. If I'm craving a bottle of Grimsby Hillside Chardonnay, no, Leaning Post did not pay us to be on this podcast this time. We're just, it's just coincidental. But like, you know, it's um, it's easier for me just to whip down there and, and pick it up. But at the wineries in, uh, in Burgoyne, most of them don't sell out the cellar doors. So like we were lucky to taste these wines, but then we have to track them down. Um, I had a fantastic tasting at Domaine Patrick Javillier. Uh, they're a specialist in white wines in Merceau in particular. Uh, I needed a bottle of their Merceau in my life. And they had to send me to a wine shop down the street because they have nothing, nothing in, in their, in their away facility. In the office. But like, this is also, again, like when you're talking about affordability and doing that, like once it passes the Domaine, so which means they're selling it at a, a wholesale price, an seller price, to a cavis, to a wine shop in Burgoyne, in a, the village, in the village of Merceau, around the corner from them. Uh, and I think I paid I paid 70 euros for this bottle, which is about $110. But take a look at the, the classics catalog that comes through. There's not a lot of Merceau that comes in for in and around that price point. And it's a lot of the larger like producers. Like You'll find Jadot and Latour and Drouin that have the odd Merceau that come in about 100 bucks. But when you're dealing with small producers... You're having a hard time finding it at that price. So, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this one, not 100 percent knowing you know where I'm going with this. Obviously, sure. the um, the red was Pinot, yeah. The white was Chardonnay, yeah. Is there any other grape that's grown in Burgundy that they were happy to talk about, or is it always going to be Bur- uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that we will see from this region? I love that you asked that question. I did a fantastic tasting with a gentleman named Sylvain Pataille. I hope he comes to Canada at some point because he would be an amazing interview on this podcast. He makes, I think I tasted five different alligotes. And, um, you know, I've got a couple of clips. Let me run the clips and then we'll talk a bit about it. Is there like, uh, I, I just asked him about like, why, like why so many alligotes? Like why not do Chardonnay? And uh, and this was in a non-Captain Chardonnay way. It's just not usual to see a vintner, a, a vignoble in Burgundy, like, focus on Aligoté. So here's what he said. I love this variety because it's a very traditional. We all think that uh, everybody thinks that Chardonnay is uh, the only one in Burgundy, but it's false. It's it's a very good one, especially on the limestone of Burgundy. It's uh, you know there's a, a pairing between uh, Chardonnay and limestone that is very interesting and that is not the same if you plant Chardonnay in limestone from Chablis uh, in Côte de in Côte de Beaune, in Macon in Côte Chenet, everywhere they show differently. But Aligoté is very traditional and it's uh, you know it's uh, it's a cousin uh, genetically they can be. Uh, uh, they, they have been obtained by the same crossing Pinot Noir cross Gué Blanc and they are very interesting and you know they are tighter I think in the past they have been uh, they have uh, as, as they were cheap the, the volumes of production the yields were maybe too high and they were not considered uh, as very serious wines so you know in the techniques in the vinification they were not made to make great wines but it's a very general what I'm saying because some few people have understood for a long, long time that uh, Aligoté is uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, I, like, I thought it was just fascinating to listen to talk about and share his passion for Aligoté. And the wines were great. The wines were really good, beautifully balanced. Um, a lot of flavor. Like, the flavor profile skews definitely heavier orchard, less citrus than I found with uh, Chardonnay. More like pear, ripe pear, underripe, like crunchy peach. So are you talking like Pinot Blanc kind of thing going? Uh, no. Like it's it sweet, it's got, got a sweetness no, to it? No, no, bone dry, like like austere AF wines, like really delicious wines. Like a lot of minerality to them? Yes, a lot of minerality to them. These were definitely like really great like Chardonnay adjacent wines. Like it makes sense why the grape would have been planted okay. there. And um, is, this, is this like the next big thing or is this like... This guy is just like the baby finger on the glove, you know. The other finger, the baby finger, does nothing. 
you know, there is a rise. There is a rise, and there are a group of Vignola that have started to organize to form a little club, like dedicated to improving the quality and improving the market perception of Aligote. But one thing I thought was particularly interesting because, like, I, I think you and I are both like, as as critics, we've sort of moved a little bit apart in our approach than where we were like five years ago. But I think you and me both at our core is the wine has to taste good. Yes, I think good wine always stands out. Yes. There is uh, that mushy middle where some people think it's great, some people do not. And that... <coughs> Ooh, that that leaning post went down the wrong way. Yep. Um, and bad wine also stands out. I think it's that mushy middle where, you know, the the the, the, the that has differing opinions, let's say. These wines were good. And these wines do not need an instruction manual to explain why they're good. And I hope we see them in the market in Ontario. Um, but apart from the fact that Sylvain is already making delicious wine with the other white grape in Burgoyne, the conversation went in a direction that I guess was logical because there's a lot of talk about climate change in Burgoyne, especially with the extreme weather that they're dealing with. But with a vintage like 2020 where they dealt with insane heat, you know, Chardonnay will like will get blousey chardonnay will just keep making sugar in the heat and mm-hmm. the acids will fall and you'll end up with really like flabby broad chardonnay so tasting the aligote he talked about how even in a hot vintage it holds acid and ripens early and i was just like is aligote potentially the future for burgoing are we maybe going to see a point where you know, some of the great wines and the great Chardonnays of Burgoyne are going to be assemblage where you start seeing 10%, 15% Aligoté to bring that balance into it. And uh, this is what he said about um, just whether or not Aligoté might be the savior to climate change in Burgoyne. Because uh, it has a big quality of keeping acidity even when it's ripening. And Aligoté is not a sugar machine. Chardonnay is able to produce much sugar to... It's very easy to harvest with uh, 14, 15 degrees with Chardonnay. Aligoté on sunny vintages, for example, with 18s, with 20s, uh, seems to stop at 12, 12.5. You sometimes, my highest, uh, the highest degree on the estate was 13.5 or 6. With Aligoté Claude du Roi, with very low yields, with a uh, 90 years old vine. So it's never crazy. And with very high uh, ripenings like this, but with normal degrees, it's still fresh. So would you equate Aligoté's flavors now that I've you know processed what you've said more along the lines of, say, a Viognier? Although Viognier <laughs> is, is not a very acidic grape to begin with itself, but based on your description, uh, with the orchard fruit, oh, I think it, I think it does we were, sound like Viognier, but yes. with acidity. I, I think if we were to make a Venn diagram of what you said, Pinot Blanc, Viognier, Chardonnay, you would have Ali, good Aligoté in the middle of it. And having had a chance to experience it from a, and and Sylvain's wines were not esoteric; like they were very approachable. Like like I said, they don't need instruction manual. They weren't funky or or weird. Like for a a guy that is focusing on the other white variety, like they were a delight to taste. I, I'm looking forward to going back. So does he um, make Chardonnay? No. No, just Aligoté. So he is never And a lot done. of really great red Marcinet. Uh, he made one that he called a Rosé, but it was really, you know, kind of like this Bach Vineyard Pinot Noir that we're holding is a little bit lighter. Like it's not super light. It's still pretty... Do you know, it's interesting because we haven't talked about the wine much at all. I think the, the Bach Vineyard looks looks dirty mm-hmm. in the glass uh it's not you know your typical you know oh, it's not clear <laughs> um so it does look a little on the dirty side but it tastes pretty damn good really um good. so uh so he's never done a uh a, a cuvee where he's done chardonnay and aligote himself well i don't know if the rules would allow it i mean that's one of the things is um like the, do, the, do they have something like that in in france can you do ig igt Wines in Burgundy, you know, like in, in Italy, if you if you go outside of, you know, the the prescribed, you you know, or is it just vin de table? 
I mean, that might be a hell of a financial risk to take as as well, right? Like, it's just like there there are a lot of rules and regulations that need to be followed with the viticulture, with the winemaking. That's a question I'll put in my back pocket for the next time I speak to uh, speak to Sylvain or speak to anyone there. I thought it was fantastic because I, I I don't know if I've ever seen. Well, I, we wouldn't because um, just the LCBO wouldn't bring them in. But these, I wonder if there is Van de Table Bourgogne or Van. De, you know, that, oh, I'm that, sure you wouldn't be able to put the word Burgoyne anywhere near, near that. that bottle, but you might be able to have some Van de Table. But it's the other thing, too, though, where, like, from a business standpoint, would you want to risk doing something like that where, I don't know. Well, put it this way, you know, he, he's just finished talking about, you know, having the acidity and the blousy Chardonnay. So, you know, in that kind of vintage, why wouldn't you just give it a shot, you know, even if it's in a small carboy? Uh, or, you know, grab a little bit of Chardonnay from your neighbor and go, hey, let's give this a shot. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll make sure that I send this uh, interview to Sylvain after it goes live, and maybe he'll be good enough to send a response about whether he's willing to do the experimentation. Because uh, it would be something interesting to, to find out. I guess you were, you like wanna... 225 liters like isn't all that much if you were to make one barrel and kind of take a like well, i mean if you use a carboy i don't know how big those little things are but i mean if you tried one well i mean that being said i didn't see sylvan working with carboys it was a lot of like french oak barrels I, all I, across I get the region. It, but i mean when 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 a winemaker experiments you know they experiment with something in the corner that you don't see uh, you know, I I remember talking to Craig McDonald's a few times. He says, "Yeah, there's some there's some stuff in this cellar that's uh, you know, uh, percolating away, and 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 you know, if it didn't work out, he just you know, blend it away into something. You know, that little <laughs> bit's not gonna make or break whatever you're doing." Oh, that's so, so funny. I love the thought of I love that. I'm sure I'm, you know what that might be worth doing some more some more digging on it. But it was also the thing too where like this was the only producer that I visited. That had aligoté on the menu, right? and the sad part is we don't see a lot of aligoté here. No. And if we did, there would be something that we could experiment on our own. With. Well, and it wasn't something that I was expecting because my experience with aligoté is, uh, and I can't remember producers, but Shadow like, de Charm is the only one that has aligoté on their menu every year uh, in terms of Ontario wineries. But I'm, I'm talking about in terms of like Burgoyne or like at some of the the wine bars that I'm going to where I've had a chance to taste um, aligoté is. I've generally found them very one-note, thin, high acid, which is why tasting these wines from Patai was such a pleasure because like, they actually had flavor. Do you know if uh, if Thomas Batchelder is listening? He did one one year. I remember that. Uh, and I think it was uh, from uh, Bourgogne. He, you know, when he was doing his three... Uh, three I still miss those wines. ...country uh, wines. Uh, he did do an Aligoté. And yeah. I... Remember liking it, but I don't remember being wowed by it in yep. any way, shape, or form. And he would be somebody interesting to talk to, maybe about that, or if he's got any of his aligoté left. To, I love uh, how you're just using this podcast to try to get other people to open open their wines for us. Well, you, you know, we, we've opened up uh, Pandora's box here, just and you keep uh, bringing it back to Ontario to yeah, do well, a little I, bit of of comparison. So if we're going to do that, <laughs> you know, let's let's do the comparison. Let's see who you know wants to put their money where their mouth is. You know, they they keep telling us that you know Ontario is all about you know Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. That we've got a lot of producers who are doing. Just Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, maybe a little Riesling over here, maybe a little Cap Franc over there. But we do have a lot of producers uh, that have started up as Pinot Noir and Chardonnay houses. And and if you are, then let's uh, let's let's open up some of those cellars. Let's check it out. Let's see if we are in the realm of 1991. All right. So so moving on here, um, and, and that is a great call to action for anyone listening listening to this. But moving on here. Um, you know, isn't it a pleasure when you're like in love with a brand or you're in love with like uh, like a famous person and you get a chance to meet them and they live up to the expectations? Oh, if they live up to it, yes. Yeah. Uh, so it was my second visit to Domaine-Drouin. Uh, my wife and I went to Domaine-Drouin on our honeymoon. We went as tourists, not journalists. So we paid for our full tasting and everything. And like we had a blast. Like we had a blast. Um, I was still working at the radio station. So making a little bit less money than I'm making now. Couldn't afford to buy anything to bring back with us, but we, like, we got to taste some really nice wines there. And the Mendruin has a really fantastic cellar, like caves that go underneath the city. Uh, it's clear the family is fantastically wealthy. 
Uh, they have the domain in Burgundy, and they have the domain in Oregon. But there is just like a, a focus on like the tourist experience, but also the quality of the wine. And we were greeted by Veronique Drouin, who is the winemaker at Domaine Drouin in Oregon. I think she's overseeing some of the winemaking in Burgundy as well. And uh, she dropped a little bit of her background story that I thought was particularly interesting, notably that Domaine Drouin was the first winery in Burgoyne to hire a female winemaker way back in the 1970s as their head winemaker. 1972, I turned 10 years old, but it's also the year my father hired someone to help him, and she happens to be a woman. So she was the first uh, woman winemaker in Burgundy, and that was an inspiration for me, and that's probably why I became a winemaker, because this was a world very much dominated by by boys. I have three brothers, I have a father in the cellar, I could only see men working. And so I didn't think I would join the business until she arrived. So she was a great inspiration and super talented person. I loved hearing that story in particular. Like the, I know that was just sort of the Coles Note versions of that, but having a little girl of my own, like I know that the industry is still quite male dominated and still has some issues that needs to be worked through, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about at another time and we talk about frequently. But I think the one thing that I actually sort of like latched onto, she talked about how she was encouraged by her father in the 70s to pursue this path, right? She said, Veronique, if you like it, you, you should do it. And then I spoke to my father. He said, of course, if you like and would like to be a winemaker, uh, he was very encouraging. So he, he said, go to Dijon, take the uh, winemaking class. And I did. And I was the only girl in my class. So it was still at that time quite rare. And of course, now there's a lot of very, very good uh, women winemakers. I just... Uh, I was just waiting for you to go on because I just... I just had jokes running through my head. I hate to say it. No, that's fine. Uh, what, what were the jokes? Except for drivers. But that's another story. <sighs> <laughs> you know, it's just like we keep taking these like steps to be a little bit more progressive. I think you and I have been a pretty good job being like champions for change in the industry. And then you got to go a little Andrew Dice Clay on it. Ah, uh, what the heck. Some days it's just fun. You know, it, it's you're, it's you're, nice to take the piss out of somebody. Every <laughs> so, we, you know, there's so much political uh, correctness these days, um, but it's it's just you know every so often it's just nice to take the piss out of it. All right, Michael. Um, so you're right. Like we could go on for for three hours. Uh, I had a chance to meet uh, Lorianne Andre, who, according to the Guide Hachette, which if you do not know about, is basically the French Michelin Guide for Wines. Uh, it actually holds a tremendous amount of weight with consumers. Um, I actually really wish that the LCBO would consider using something like that for a resource instead of clown reviews from people like James Suckling. Uh, Luca Maroni. And Luca Maroni. Um, but I was fortunate enough, thanks to uh, Angela Aiello, who took me to go have a drink with her one evening at her home. And she was pleased to meet Captain Chardonnay. I got a chance to taste some of her wines. According to the Guide Hachette, in 2023, she is part of the uh, team, two-person team that are the winemakers of the year in France. And oh, oh man, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous Chardonnay uh, repped by the Gibson Group. So after this trip, I guess we'll wrap this up by yeah, saying let's do this. It. So after going to Burgundy, tasting Chardonnay, tasting Pinot Noir, you still... You still a hundred percent the Chardonnay camp, or you leaning a little bit more Burgundy these days? Or <laughs> uh, the last day, our our driver and translator, and uh, I guess I'll consider him a friend now. Nicolas Takart took me to Montrachet, and I donned my cape and my mask, and I was still Captain Chardonnay. But, you know what, before we wrap, if I can say one more thing on a serious note before we move on to a lighter note, you know, the thing about being in Burgoyne that it just reminded me, um, not everybody learns things the same way. And I spent a lot of time reading books. Uh, I read several wine books just trying to get an understanding for how Burgoyne works. And I really want to thank the BIVB, the, the Burgoyne wine people who organized the trip and invited me out there. 
because just the geographic trek starting in the south and working to the north gave me like a really strong visualization of what it was I was learning and it is going to stick with me like forever and the other side of it as well because like I love being an ambassador for Ontario wine everywhere that I I go because I know domestically and it is a domestic problem that people think that Ontario wines aren't as good as other wines in the world we're on the right track and I I am 100% convinced of that and this is after going to a region and tasting wines that cost a hell of a lot more than anything in Ontario with vines that are a hell of a lot older than anything we have in Ontario today we will one day we're on the right track I, I would say that that is true, uh, but I come at it from a Loire point of view um, because I, I've been to the Loire, I've tasted Cabernet Franc from there, and I would say that Ontario is on the right track 100% the way we make Cabernet Franc. Um, so you come at it from a uh, now a Burgundy point of view uh, for Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs. So it does show that Ontario winemakers are on that path with at least those three grape varieties. Now, now what we really need is, is Beaujolais to give us a call. And let's see if we're on the right track with Gamay. So uh, Beaujolais, if you're out there, give us a ring. I'm Andre Pru of AndreWineReview.ca. I will be, it will probably take me the whole summer, but I am going to do the best I can to uh, profile this trip day by day. Uh, I tasted about 200 wines, and I don't think I tasted a single wine that I would consider bad. I think I tasted a lot of wines that were, you know, not as interesting to me, but when you go to my website, it'll hopefully have a little bit of that bias stripped out of this. And, um, you can support us, support the podcast, patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. And follow me on social medias at Andre Wine Review, although apparently also at Captain Chardonnay. I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Mostly I can be found as the grape guy. Andre, it was nice to uh, dive deep into Burgundy with you. Uh, I hope to be around when you open at least one of these wines, if oh, not a y- couple. Yeah. No, no, I. I, I and then, like I said, your stupid voice was in my head, tasting that 1991 Oget from Domaine Pavlo, and just like, uh, get out of my head. Oh, I'm living there rent-free. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.